This is an ABC podcast. Judith Human was a trailblazing disability rights activist in the US. She passed away on Saturday, aged 75. And I had the great privilege of speaking with Judy in 2021. When Judith Human was a toddler, she caught polio. Judy was one of the nearly 43,000 American children affected by the 1949 epidemic. Polio left Judy paralysed. She's unable to walk and with only limited use of her hands and arms. But Judy and her parents refused to accept what being disabled was supposed to mean for her future. And crucially, Judy was willing to make a fuss about it. If you're over 40, you probably remember a time when buses and public bathrooms weren't wheelchair accessible, when there were no ramps on the footpath and no sign language interpreters at press conferences. These kind of revolutionary changes came about because of disability rights activists like Judy. They put their bodies on the line to change the world and they had a lot of fun doing it. Judy went from sit-ins and street protests to serving in the Clinton and Obama administrations, and she became the World Bank's first advisor on disability and development. Hi, Judy. Hi, so nice to be with you. It's so good to have you here. Judy, you were, you were born in Brooklyn. Was that a neighbourhood where all the kids hung out together? Actually, I have to confess, I was born in Philadelphia. What? But I only lived there for three months. <laughs> so I totally, I totally claim Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm definitely from Brooklyn. And we had a very interesting neighborhood, middle class neighborhood, you know, police officer, a firefighter, teachers, and, and many of the people who moved in came in about the same time. So my parents bought a place there. I think it was like 1946, 47, and it was all small family, detached, attached homes. Like our house was attached to our next door neighbor. So if anybody next door was having an argument or anybody in our house was having an argument, we could clearly not only hear the noise, but understand what people were saying. That's why people didn't need Netflix back then, Judy. You could just listen in on your neighbours. Exactly. We did our own. (laughs) (laughs) And the neighbourhood was, um, you know, there were a lot of kids. And so we were all relatively similar age. We had a lot of fun together. How did you get about as a a six or seven-year-old? Or even younger. So I had a wheelchair. At that point in time, there were no motorized wheelchairs. If you could come and look at my neighborhood, you would laugh. But there was a little incline between my parents' house and my friend Arlene and my friend Mary. And I wasn't very strong. And my mother would push me up the driveway so I could get to the sidewalk. And then I would push myself from our house two doors to Arlene's house. And if I didn't hold correctly when I was pushing the chair, it would roll back. But the incline to the naked eye, you would look and say, what incline? But that's because my arms weren't strong. And so the slightest incline, I would roll back. And then I would go to my neighbor's house, Arlene or Mary's. And because there were steps and we had no cell phones, or anything like that, I would just call in or call up and say things like, Arlene, you want to come out and play? Or Mary, do you want to come out and play? But that was the way it was. Hmm. What did your parents do for work there in Brooklyn? My parents were German Jewish and my parents had been sent out of Germany. My dad was 14 in 1934. My mom was 12 in 1935. And we lost our grandparents and other relatives on both sides of the family. And my parents were definitely uh, very much kind of moving forward as they were really coming out of, I think in some very real ways, the fog of what had happened, how their parents had been murdered. And my dad and his brother started a little butcher shop. Everybody on my father's side of the family was in the meat business. So we had my father and my uncle's store called L&W Human Meats, 
Then we had another cousin who had human meats and another cousin who had another initials and human meats. And they were in Queens and Brooklyn. What, Judy, had, had a doctor advised your parents to do with you after you'd recovered from polio? Yeah, so that was very interesting, actually, because when I was about 36 years old, I was home visiting, and my father and I were at the dining room table, and my mom was upstairs, and my father started telling me about how a doctor had recommended that they put me in an institution when I was about two years old. And I said to my father, Dad, that's not true. And he goes running up the stairs, and my mom's name was Ilsa. He's going, Ilsa, Ilsa, isn't it true that a doctor wanted us to put Judy in an institution? And my mother said, yes. That's the first time I ever heard of that. But I think, you know, retrospectively, it wasn't a surprise because there were many people, kids, that were being put in various forms of institutions. But it was clear that my parents wouldn't have any of that, I think, for many reasons. But one of them certainly was because of how they were survivors and how the first group of people who were murdered by the Nazis were disabled individuals. And um, I think my parents just made a decision early on, you know, when I, after I had polio, that uh, they were going to treat me like my brothers. They were pretty, I mean, I have to give them an amazing amount of credit for their vision of what needed to happen and how they really kind of plotted through. What happened when it was time for you to start kindergarten? <laughs> I was five years old. My mother, like the other mothers in the neighborhood, took me to school to register me. And she pushed my wheelchair. It was walking distance from our house. The school wasn't accessible. We knew that. But I presume my mother was going to pull me up the stairs to get to the school and pick me up at the end of the day. And uh, when we went to the school, the principal said I couldn't enroll in the school because I was a fire hazard. So my mother took me home and the Board of Ed said that they would send a teacher to our house, which they did five days a week, but only two and a half hours a day of education. So I had no kindergarten and my mother kept looking for other schools that I possibly could go to, but that wasn't successful. So finally, when I was nine years old in the middle of the fourth grade, my mom got a call. I had been on a waiting list for segregated classes, and she got a call to bring me to this school. It was a regular school, but had classes in the basement called Health Conservation 21 classes. I later learned that that meant any of the kids who were in the HC21 classes had a physical disability and difficulty or not able to walk up and down stairs, which meant that a school bus would pick us up with a lift and take us to school and that there would be people working in the classes who could help us do things like get our coats on and off, go to the bathroom, eat lunch if you needed help, uh, feeding and things of that nature. Mm. And, and what about the academic side? Like what kind of expectations did the teachers have of you once you did manage to start school? You know, I think it depended on the teacher, but the curricula was not the same curricula as the non-disabled children had in the school. There was no teaching and learning and testing like in the regular classes. You, you'd grown up with lots of friends in your neighbourhood, Judy, but they were able-bodied on the whole. What was it like being around other disabled kids? So I don't use the word able-bodied. I use the word non-disabled. Thank you. But, yes, I grew up... That's OK. I grew up around kids who didn't have disabilities in the neighbourhood or in my family, for that matter. So I first started meeting other disabled kids on a regular basis, and... That was really a very important time in my life. Teaching was bad. Traveling to and from school was a lot. But 
we did get to become friends with each other. It didn't at all negate what I was doing in my neighborhood with my brothers or my neighbors or my cousins or friends, but it was different because we had similar stories. We were able at a young age to begin to start talking a little bit about disability and what we were experiencing as far as bias and low expectations. Surely that was not a major part of discussion when we were nine, <laughs> 10 years old, because I think it's something, you know, that we were just um, gradually beginning to recognize that we were not being given the same opportunities as others who appeared not to have a disability. Mm -hmm. It's kind of confusing because I definitely do not support segregated classes or segregated schools. I think it's really important that disabled and non-disabled children go to school together. But had I not had the opportunity to really engage with other disabled people my age, um, I think things would have been very different. You also started going to summer camp with other disabled kids. What was special about camp? Well, I think on the one hand, the camps were like other camps. Um, in the U.S., camps are a big deal. But I didn't get to go to the camps that my brothers went to because those camps were not accessible and they didn't take kids with physical disabilities. So if I was going to go to an overnight camp, I was going to go to a camp for disabled kids. And the first camp I went to was one called Camp Oakhurst, which is in uh, New Jersey and still exists. And the next camp that I went to was Camp Jeanette, which Crip Camp was filmed at. The difference for me between Camp Oakhurst and Camp Jeanette was the age that I was. So when I went to Camp Oakhurst, I was like 9, 10, 11. I think I went to Camp Jeanette when I was 12, 13, and went there for like four years or so. So, you know, when I was 12, 13 years old, I was obviously very different than when I was nine. And so, it was an opportunity as a teenager to do a number of things. You know, one was to be a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we dated, we, you know, necked, we went to dances, we did all those things. But at that point, if we would have been at a camp with non-disabled kids, it would likely not have been the same experience. Because here there was, you know, we all had disabilities. And that really meant that we didn't feel negatively or frightened of or that we didn't want to associate with each other. We did. And I think we saw commonality as opposed to, and obviously there were some differences because some of us had speech disabilities, others didn't. But I think Camp Jeanette and Oakhurst really afforded me and others opportunities that we would not have gained by being at camps for mm. non-disabled kids. Watching Crip Camp, the documentary on Netflix about Camp Jeanette and in, in which you feature Judy, one of the things that's really striking, well, two things actually, the first thing is how much fun it looks like you're all having as teenagers, but the other thing is is how everyone is really listened to, like however long that takes, each person present is is really attended to. I think, you know, the point that you're making about how we listen to each other was very much because we didn't even see it that way. I think it's fascinating for me, the number of people who comment on that exact point, that people are very struck by how people were so attentive to listening to what people had to say. And I think it was just so very natural because, you know, we found people had interesting things to say, were funny or sexy or whatever it was. And I think it's also very true that frequently many of those same people would not have had the same respect of people listening and hearing their views, but it was just something that was natural. You had this world with disabled kids at other disabled kids at camp, but you went to a mainstream high school. What happened at your graduation ceremony, Judy? So I 
graduated from high school. We had a very large class. We had 1,700 seniors. And we couldn't graduate from our high school because it wasn't big enough. So we had to graduate from one of the colleges in the neighborhood in Brooklyn. And um, I was getting an award. And all of the people who got awards were supposed to go on the stage. And my father went to pull my wheelchair up the steps because, of course, there was no ramp. And the principal came over and said, I could just sit at the base of the stage. And he would come over and give me my award while everybody else that was getting an award was going to be on stage. And my father said, no, he would pull me up on the stage. I was mortified. I was so embarrassed. I don't know whether anybody saw what was going on, but to me, it was just, here I was graduating, supposed to be on stage with others who were getting awards. And in front of everybody, the principal was like, no, 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 Mr. Ewan, she doesn't have to come on stage. Honestly, if it would have been me to my own, I, I'm sure I would have left because I was too humiliated. And then my dad pulled me on the stage and the principal made me sit in the back and, you know, what was going on is you would get an award and you would come to the front. But because I didn't have a motorized wheelchair then still, and I had to push my wheelchair, I couldn't get all the way to the front. And so I just pushed myself a little towards the front and he came and gave me the award. So it was all embarrassing, humiliating, but a real indication of the times. Mm. And, and a testament to the determination, your parents, yeah. Were you surprised yes. that your dad was insistent or was that in keeping with his character? Um, my father was a Marine in the Second World War. <laughs> so I think, you know, the answer to that question is he was persistent. But, you know, unlike my mom, he had never really confronted a situation like that. You know, he and my uncle had a butcher store and they would, he would leave for work between like 3.30 and 5 in the morning and come home like 7 or 8 at night. And so my mother was the one that was primarily dealing with many of these issues. In spite of a lot of practical challenges, like the fact that buildings were not wheelchair accessible, you moved out of home to go to college and you wanted to be a teacher. What stopped you from getting your teacher's licence? So, you know, if we think about camp, Camp Jeanette, we as teenagers were beginning to look at what did we want to be doing when we got out of high school. We were looking at who were our role models. Of course, there were very few. You know, you didn't really see other disabled people as teachers or professors or people in merchandise or whatever. And so um, there were limited jobs that disabled people as a rule were getting social work, accounting, speech therapy, but not teachers. But I wanted to be a teacher. And so I called an organization in New York, which is a national group here called the American Civil Liberties Union. And I was a freshman or a sophomore. And I said, look, I want to be a teacher, but I use a wheelchair and I think I'm going to be denied my license. And the person on the phone said, well, just go ahead and do whatever you would normally do. And if you have a problem, call us. So I did. And I took my written exam, my oral exam, all were offered in completely inaccessible buildings. At that point, we still didn't have any of our major anti-discrimination laws in the US. And then I had to take a medical exam. It also was offered in inaccessible building. But I passed my written and I passed my oral, but I failed my medical. And the specific reason I failed my medical was paralysis of both lower extremities, sequelae of poliomyelitis. So I'd been denied my license because of, I couldn't walk. So I called the ACLU and I said, okay, this is what you told me to do. I did it. Now I'd like to come down and have an appointment and talk about whether you could represent me. And they called me back and said, no, they didn't need to have a meeting because what had happened was not discrimination. 
they denied me my license for medical reasons. And I tried to speak to this person on the phone and explain why that was ridiculous, um, but it, nothing happened. But I do want to put a caveat in, which is a really new caveat. So this happened in 1971. About three or four weeks ago, I got a letter 51 years or 50 years later apologizing for the fact that they turned me away. I got a letter from the, from the CEO apologizing. I'm glad you got that letter, but that wasn't, a, that wasn't on offer 51 years ago. So what did you do? You were denied your license on these spurious medical grounds. The ACLU said they couldn't support you. What did you do? Well, I, I don't believe in magic, but there was something. <laughs> the stars were aligned. So on a Wednesday, an article appeared in a newspaper in the States called the New York Times, which probably many people in Australia have heard of. Anyway, it's a very prestigious paper. And it had been pretty conservative on disability. I never would say that the New York Times was an advocate on disability rights issues at that point in time. But um, a friend of mine was a student at LIU, and he had a friend at the New York Times, and he wrote a piece about how I'd been denied my license. And the next day there was an editorial in the New York Times called something like Human versus the Board of Education or Give Human a Job or something like that. That was a Thursday. And then I got a call from a gentleman named Roy Lucas that same day, that Thursday, uh, asking if he could talk to me about my experience. He was a civil rights lawyer, human rights lawyer, and he was writing a book and he hadn't thought about doing anything on disability. But based on what he had read in the New York Times, he wanted to talk more about it. And I really was waffling at that point about what I, in fact, file a lawsuit because I didn't know any lawyers. <laughs> and I was very much worried about, well, you know, I've actually never taught in a classroom. What would I be exposing myself to? What if I didn't do a good job, but it adversely affect other disabled people getting a teaching job? So... That was where I was. And when this call came out of the blue from Roy, I really liked him. And I kind of boldly said to him, I don't have any money. Would you be willing to represent me? And he said, yes. And then the next day, I was asked to be on this national morning television program. And then there were editorials in the other major papers. And um, things kind of lined up. <laughs> You were only in your early 20s, Judy. How did you go yeah. being thrust into the media spotlight? Was that a comfortable space for you? So um, there's a program here in the States called The Today Show. When they called and asked me if I wanted to be on it, I thought, oh, my God, you've never done anything like this before. But how could I turn it down? Because it was a real opportunity. My friends and I you know, had been working on setting up a group called Disabled in Action. And it was a national opportunity to talk about not just my denial of a job, but to be able to talk about the kinds of discrimination disabled people in the United States were facing. And so I said, I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, I, I look back at some of these things and, you know, if I was older, maybe I would have thought more about, well, what about this or what about that? But at that point, I could only think, this is an opportunity I am not going to let get by, and I can do it. And I guess from what, the way you describe your family, you know, your parents had encouraged you and your brothers to have opinions and speak out and debate. So you, you had been training in a way. Absolutely. You came. <laughs> we would invite friends to our dinner table and... <laughs> Sometimes we would forget to say, you know, our dinner table appears that it wasn't a typical dinner table. Apparently lots of people would sit down and have dinner and not talk very much, but that was never our house. We always had debates or discussions and my father was always being provocative and it was frequent, you know, that we would have big arguments at the table or he would send you off to look in the encyclopedia and read something if you didn't know what it was or if you thought you needed to learn about it, write a report. or just, <laughs> People would say, 
how come you didn't tell me about what happened at dinner? And of course, for us, it was nothing unusual. So, so you're right, I was prepared. And when your case finally came to court, who was the judge? So we were very, like, that's why I'm saying things were so amazing. We had the first African-American female judge to be appointed to the federal court. Um, her name was Constance Baker Motley. And she was a civil rights attorney. So she basically directed the board or encouraged the Board of Ed to give me another medical exam. And so they did, and that's how I got my license. I had to go see another doctor, and this doctor was much younger and basically profusely apologized for what had happened. But it was really good because what was going on, the opportunity was about the lawsuit about getting my teaching license. But it really was provoking discussions, really in many different parts of the country, because there were articles that appeared in papers and magazines around the country for a year. So it really was a story of a young person without a teaching license. But we and my friends and others around the country were really able to use it as another example of the type of discrimination, baseless discrimination that we were experiencing because of our disability. On air, online, and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. seventies you moved to California to Berkeley. What kind of atmosphere was that when you arrived? So it's cooling off a little bit from the nineteen sixties and early seventies with the anti war movement, but it was a real bed of activism in the area of disability. And there was an organization that had been set up called the Berkeley Center for Independent Living and two of the departments at UC Berkeley public health and city and regional planning and asked me if I would be interested in applying to graduate school and coming out to Berkeley to study. At that point, what they were looking to do was to bring some activists out to Berkeley who they then wanted to go back to our own communities and start similar programs to the Berkeley CIL. Long and short of it was I went to Berkeley in School of Public Health. Living in Berkeley was a great opportunity for me to work with other activists. And quite a number of my friends from New York moved out to Berkeley and got involved also with the Berkeley CIL. And I think what was very important for me about Berkeley was the community was much smaller than New York. Um, it was easier to get changes made because it was a smaller environment and we knew the politicians more and it was just easier obviously physically but but also just politically it was a wonderful opportunity for me very glad that i did it one of the things that was new for you in in california was that you were able to hire personal care assistants what was different about having paid helpers judy well i had had paid assistants when i went to undergraduate school but it was the first time that I was able to get money from the state while I was in school because I wasn't, I didn't have a salary. And uh, I also was able to hire personal assistants much more readily because there was a system in place. Um, the center had interviewed people who were interested in being attendants and screened them. And then the individual person who needed the attendant would interview and hire and train their own workers. So that was the real eye-opening experience that I had less restrictions. I could get up and go to bed more when I wanted to, as opposed to 
when somebody was available. And that was also something that I attributed to when I went to camp, because when I went to camp, the counselors there also helps you get in and out of bed. And at that point, it was a big deal because my mother was the only one helping me. So being able to make decisions like what I wanted to wear was something that frequently was more dominated by what my mother said she had time to decide. So all those things are very important. You know, I think people frequently don't think about the stages that young people are learning and beginning to make decisions and beginning to have arguments, you know, with the family or someone. No, don't wear this, wear that. No, I'm going to wear this, not that. And those are very important, I think, growing up stages. So, Judy, this is 1977 and you're living in California and the federal government was stalling on signing off on regulations that would prohibit discrimination against people with disabilities in any organisation that received federal funding, schools, hospitals, transport systems, all of that. This was really groundbreaking legislation. You and other activists had, had lobbied, you'd held meetings with officials, but nothing was happening. What did you decide to do? Basically, what was happening was there was a change of administration and uh, the Republicans were leaving office and they had refused to sign the regulations that had been drafted and had basically been cleared. And then when the Democrats came in, Jimmy Carter, he had said that they would sign the regulations. And when the ministry to the agency that had responsibility for implementing regulations, when their new head of ministry was appointed, we were very concerned because he had a history of having worked as a paid lobbyist for a number of organizations that were now going to be covered by the law. The law basically said, if you get money from the federal government, you may not discriminate against someone based on their disability. And the regulations go into great detail about what that means. And when the regulations were not being signed under the new administration that many disabled people had supported. We had established an organization called the American Coalition of Citizens with Disabilities, and we decided in February of 77 that if the regulations were not signed by April, that we would have demonstrations around the United States which is exactly what happened. So you were part of the, the big demonstration in San Francisco. What happened at the, at the culmination of that demonstration? Where did you and other protesters head? There were ultimately about 150 people who camped out in this uh, federal government building in San Francisco. To organise a sit-in is no small feat. What were the extra challenges, given that a lot of the protesters camping out had various disabilities? What did that mean logistically for a sit-in? Well, I think um, any group that was going to be staging a demonstration like this would have had many logistical issues to deal with, things like food and how to save and how to keep people meaningfully occupied while in the building with activities. But additionally, for disabled people, it was everything from deaf people in the building needing sign language interpreters and hearing disabled people learning sign language and people like myself who needed assistance in getting down to the floor to sleep on the floor and getting back in our wheelchair and help going to the bathroom. So we were able to mobilize support within the building. We had food that was brought in by one of the groups called the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers brought food to your sit-in. One of the members <laughs> of the leadership of the demonstration was a disabled man who was one of the founders of the Black Panthers. And so when he got involved, he spoke to them about bringing food in. So they brought food every day to people in the building. So that that was one very important thing that we didn't have to not that food was the best food in the world, obviously, <laughs> and people were getting, you know, bored by it, but it was the generosity of the organization to make sure that people were, in fact, being fed. Hmm. What was the mood like inside that, that office building that you'd all occupied? What was the atmosphere? I think it was one of sincere commitment. 
not everybody could stay the whole time. Some people had to leave, and we would sneak some other people into the building. But I think people felt really proud. People were really beginning to recognize that we were making a difference. And that, you know, for many of the disabled people there, it was the first time that, well, it's, it's the longest occupation of a federal building in the history of the U.S. So that in and of itself, historically, is a very important message. But I think people really felt empowered. And the empowerment was them as individuals and collectively. Two weeks into that sit-in, a group of you left the sit-in in San Francisco to go as a, a delegation to Washington. Who met you at the airport in Washington? Well, we were supported throughout the demonstration by many groups, including labor unions. And so the machinist union met us in Washington with a big truck and a big moving ramp. And we all traveled around pretty much in that very big truck. Um, We slept in a church on pews and on the floor uh, while we were there. And um, we had demonstrations outside of the White House, outside of President Carter's church. A group of us went in to meet within the White House to talk about the regulations and why they were important and how we were very concerned about changes that were being proposed. You know, there were also people who joined from other parts of the country in the demonstrations in Washington, D.C., and ultimately the regulations were signed in a very low-key way. The secretary, whose name is, was Joseph Califano, did not invite any of the protesters did not make a big deal out of the signing, which I think, you know, for me and many others was really another slap in the face because this was a major civil rights piece of legislation and regulation. And I think he is, his pride was bruised. Um, during the demonstrations in Washington, we had uh, had peaceful demonstrations outside of his house. We had a, a sunrise religious service. We had a minister who did a sunrise service. We gave out flyers in his neighborhood to the kids there, encouraging them to talk to him about uh, signing the regulations. But anyway, they signed them very quietly. Nobody got invited, and he's never spoken to any of us since then. <laughs> You were a singer, Judy. You'd always loved singing. Were you singing during these protests or in the back of that that removalist truck that was driving you and other delegates around Washington? Yeah, I think that was me singing in that in the vehicle Amazing Grace. Your focus then then switched to legislation that covered the private sector, which was the promise of the Americans with Disabilities Act. But again, that was slow going, trying to get those those laws passed. What happened on March 12th, 1990? So I think it's important to realise that the disability community in the US, like in Australia, has slowly been uh, growing and expanding. And after the 504 regulations were being implemented, the law still did not protect disabled people against discrimination in the in the uh, private sector. So starting in the, in the mid-80s, there was a big move on developing a piece of legislation, which ultimately was called, is called the Americans with Disabilities Act. And the date that you're referring to is something called the, the Capitol Crawl, where disabled people from an organization called ADAPT basically went to our capital, uh, which has many steps to get up it on one side, and many people were crawling up the steps to make the point that we needed this legislation in order to ensure removal of barriers and accessibility into the broader community. It's called the capital crawl. I think it was, was four months or so after that capital crawl, that um, that act was passed outlawing discrimination against people with disabilities. What do you remember feeling in that moment on that day when President Bush signed that law? I think, you know, people around the country felt very proud that 
this major hurdle had been overcome where we had been able to convince the Congress that there was a need to create a national piece of legislation that uh, made it illegal to discriminate against disabled people in the public and private sectors in many areas. And one of the most important aspects of the ADA was the growth of our movement because we had to be able to work um, across the districts for our congressmen and women and across our states for our U.S. centers, of which we have two in every state. And ultimately, um, it was a bipartisan effort to really uh, finally bring everyone to the table. And it was not easy. This was this was all happening in um, the public sphere in your, your activist life. Who did you meet at a party in Oregon a year or so later? <laughs> so this was after the um, ADA had been signed. Um, there's an organization in the U.S. called Mobility International USA, and the leader of that group is a woman named Susan Siegel, who actually um, came to Australia for, I guess, about a year, I think, studying recreational therapy in the area of disability. And she came back to the U.S. and started this group called Mobility International USA, and I was invited to come and spend a week there and do some talking and uh, it's a beautiful area in Eugene. And uh, they had a group of people from Mexico. And that's where I met my husband. <laughs> what what drew you to him? What what attracted you to him? So um, when I got there with a friend of mine who lived in Berkeley but was from Mexico, uh, we went to a barbecue. And there was this guy there. And I said to my friend Maribel, this guy's got really cute shoulders. <laughs> I really loved his shoulders. <laughs> and turned around, he had a beautiful face. And uh, that's my husband. We just been married 29 years. His name is Jorge Pineda. Hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, that was that. When you were invited to take up a role in Bill Clinton's administration, a really big job, and you were unsure about accepting it, your husband said you should go for it. You're a chingona. What's a chingona? <laughs> I would interpret it as kind of, you know, you have balls. <laughs> Girl with balls. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, uh, you know, you can do it. It's like you're strong. Yeah. Did did you always feel like you were up to that role? You had this big job in, in Clinton's government and then in, in President Obama's administration. What was it like going from activist to being on the other side of the table, being within the government? Well, my job with the Clinton administration was exciting and challenging. Um, it was a great opportunity. I'm really glad I had that opportunity. I'm forever grateful to the president for, you know, selecting me for that position. Um, but it was a real challenge for me because I on a regular basis was confronted by the discrimination that still existed in spite of the many laws that had been passed, some of which my staff had a staff of about 400 people, and it was our responsibility to help ensure that a major U.S. education law, a major law in the area of employment, and provisions in the area of research were carried out. And uh, it was a great opportunity because I was meeting many people that I didn't know before, many of them non-disabled, running educational associations and other types of organizations, and challenging because, um, you know, when you're just there on the advocacy side, it's, you know, one thing really pushing, pushing, pushing. When I was working in government, it in part was my job to keep pushing on both sides to make sure that the government was really learning about what needed to be done more effectively, being able to develop strong alliances between the different communities. Because for me, it was very important that the disability community believe that I was doing my best and that um, my staff was doing their best. And um, so we 
trying to afford like many opportunities for people to be able to come together and to work together or develop new legislation. Mm. And there was a lot going on at that time, but it was an opportunity that I learned so much from and, and, for, and really forever grateful that I had that opportunity. I really grew a lot because I had to do things that I didn't think I was able to do or had never even thought about. So, you know, testifying before Congress on budgets and controversial issues and feeling secure enough that I would really push my ideas forward. I think one of the important aspects of that job is we were able to assemble a senior leadership team that really worked very harmoniously together. And I think that really um, enabled us to do some pretty good work. I think we left our jobs having things be a little bit better than they were. But I would definitely say, you know, things are not yet where they need to be in any country. Did your parents live to see that professional success of yours, Judy? My dad unfortunately passed away even before I got married. I met Jorge in um, 91. So he didn't meet my dad, but he did meet my mom. And my mom did live for a number of years after I got the job. So she actually was there for the first term of President Clinton. And then when he was reelected, she was alive for another couple of years. So, yeah, she definitely saw that. And she came to D.C. on a number of occasions. And, um, yeah, she was very proud. It also allowed me to show her off. (laughs) What did Washington make of Ilsa Human? You know, I think people respected her a lot. Mm. Yeah. When you think about all the the different qualities and, I guess, factors that allowed you to become the activist you've been and have the influence you have, what do you think is the most significant? I think the ability to continue to work with many people from around the world. I started doing some international work Actually, one of the first countries that I visited when I was doing international work was Australia. I'd been in Germany and Sweden and then Australia, and it was um, a great experience. And for me, what's been very, many, I think, very meaningful parts of my life, but really the ability to work with disabled people from around the world is a wonderful opportunity. And... I hope I made a little contribution. I think more than a little contribution, Judy. I I wonder when you you reflect about the different ways that society treats people with disabilities, what does that say more generally about a society, the way it enables or doesn't enable people who are differently abled? Yeah, I also don't use that word. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me. I don't use the word able-bodied, and I don't use differently able. I just say disabled and non-disabled. But I think um, we're still on a journey. And the journey, I think, still is one where non-disabled people are fearful of acquiring a disability. And where many people who may have disabilities, uh, specifically people with invisible disabilities, such as depression or anxiety or bipolar or other forms of invisible disabilities are afraid to disclose because they're afraid of um, something adversely happening to them, not getting a job, not being able to advance in a job, receiving additional discrimination in the community. We have a lot of work to do to really recognize that disability is truly a normal part of life. And instead of being fearful of it, As a community, regardless of what country you live in, we need to be recognizing the changes that continue to need to be made, breaking down the barriers for employment, breaking down the barriers for being able to live in the community, breaking down the barriers where people are not able to get the financial support and ability to hire people as personal assistants, sign language interpreters, readers, ensuring that technology which is being created is accessible 
and really looking at diversity as being inclusive of disabilities, of black and brown and indigenous and gay and straight and Muslims and Jews and Christians and whoever, that we really, disability cuts across all of these communities. And as a movement, we really need to continue to grow, not just to be representative of the one billion disabled people that WHO and the World Bank state, like at least 15% of the world's population have various forms of disabilities. But we need to, to really, I think, as we're in some ways struggling with the diversity uh, that exists in our countries and the ability to welcome all people, the disabled community, I think, is really trying to forge ahead and uh, be an example for ourselves as disabled people, because we're also needing to learn about our different communities within our community, that we are not discriminating from within ourselves against others, but then also being a real, I want to say, beacon, you know, of what can happen to really make our communities one where we are respectful of everyone. Judy, that sounds like that sounds like a great community to belong to. Thank you so much for sharing your story on Conversations. Thank you so much. It was a privilege to be asked. Today you heard my conversation with Judy Human. We spoke down the line in 2021. And sadly, Judy passed away on Saturday from heart complications stemming from her polio. But what a woman and what a legacy. Her memoir is called Being Human, and that's her name, H-E-U-M-A-N-N, The Unrepentant Memoir of a Disability Rights Activist. And if you get a chance, have a look at that documentary, Crip Camp. It features Judy and has amazing scenes from that sit-in in San Francisco in 1977. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.